The great message of Christianity, it was said once by the Scottish minister William Barclay, is that where God has set us by his sovereign design and will, there we must live out the Christian life, where God has set us. He comments, our circumstances may be against us, but that only makes our calling greater. In the end, Christianity does not promise us an escape in the present from our circumstances. Instead, it offers us conquest in our circumstances. You know, really, it's interesting to me that the very first thing that we learn about Paul when reading through sequentially the entire Pauline canon is that he was a slave of Christ. Have you ever noted that? In the crown jewel of the Pauline canon, Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 1, we are simply told Paul, a doulos, literally a slave, a, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Just realize what that could have said. Paul, a Pharisee. Paul, a preacher. Paul, a herald. Paul, a scholar. Paul, an author. But it says none of those things. It says Paul, a slave of Jesus. In fact, this is by no means the only, nor even the first time that Paul had embraced this new creation identity of his as a loyal subject or servant of Jesus Christ. In one of Paul's earliest writings, the book of Galatians, we read, for example, Galatians 1 verse 10, Paul says, For am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a doulos, a servant or a slave of Christ. As Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. Jesus, or yourself, or the world. But make no mistake, you will serve someone. To the very end of his life, up to his final arrest, and his execution at the hands of the Romans, Paul embraced his station as a slave of Jesus. To Titus, he wrote these words, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge in the truth, which accords with godliness. What would that be like to be poured out in the service of Jesus such that the, the, the moniker you would choose for yourself is a slave? Oh God, that would you fill this church with men and women who not resist, but who embrace such an identity. Listen, for Paul, the freest person on the planet Earth was the man or woman who lived as a slave of Jesus. Now friends, our text today in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9, it contains the last in a series of three consecutive sections on these house codes as they were known in the early days, in the early church. 
beginning with the relationships between husbands and wives in Ephesians 5.22, and parents and children in Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4, and now finally, these relationships between Christian masters and Christian slaves in Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9, Paul, I think very helpfully and very clearly, but quite challengingly, illustrates and applies for us the dramatic transformation that, it, that takes place when someone receives and begins to follow Jesus Christ. These sections present us then with a picture, going all the way back to Ephesians 5.18, of what it looks like to be spirit-filled followers of Jesus Christ, particularly in our home setting. That's what we've been studying here of late at Trinity. According to Paul, as expressed in both his preaching and in his writing ministry, played out over the better part of almost two decades, listen, Christianity uniquely in the ancient world, and I would add wonderfully throughout all subsequent centuries and contexts, Christianity alone aimed to elevate all people onto an equal standing beneath the gracious feet of Jesus. There's something unique about our faith when it comes to those who bear the image of God. According to the Bible and in the church of God, we are all one in Christ. Despite your dialect, despite your skin tone, despite your economic status, You are no better or worse than anyone else in this church because of Jesus. He levels the playing field for all his children. I think of Ephesians 4, 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Think of Galatians 3.18, which must have shocked early readers of the Scripture. Where Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That doesn't strike us like it should. That was revolutionary in the ancient world. Just imagine... Just imagine for a moment being a slave in ancient Greece or in the Roman world, or for that matter, being a member of some specific ethnicity or political class in some modern context even today, and coming across Colossians 3.11 for the first time, where Paul says, here, meaning in the gospel and in the church of Jesus, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Friend, Christ Jesus is all for us. Imagine understanding for the very first time that your identity and your value and your importance does not come from your social status or bank account from your personal activity or productivity as an employer or employee, but instead, your identity is rooted in God's seal of love 
in the adoption of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, that that sets your identity. That because of Jesus, you are prized and you are precious, even if you're poor. As the Bible says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him, that being a mom or a minister, being a top executive or an entry-level employee, being the top dog or the litter of the, uh, the runt of the litter makes no difference when you're a part of the family of God. Because Jesus alone is the head of the church. Everyone else, black and white, rich and poor, Young and old, male and female, introvert and extrovert, everyone else is simply brother and sister. That's us. That's the church. And we have the corner on that truth. There's no other place on God's good planet where that is true than in the church. Now, friends... Understand that once again, the Apostle Paul wrote these specific words, and this is not an easy message. He wrote these specific words, Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 9, with distinctly Christian masters and Christian bondservants or slaves fully in mind. Do you hear me? Listen, trying to sterilize these verses or to pull them out of their original context and to apply them exclusively, though they do apply in this way in a moment, and I will, to modern employer or employee uh, concept of those things, is to do a massive disservice to the text. And I would submit to you, you can't understand this passage if you merely apply it to employers and employees in our modern American context. Paul was talking to Christian people who owned others. And to others who were Christians who were slaves of those people. That's who Paul was talking to. We should no doubt then feel a bit anxious and a bit awkward when we come to this very passage where Paul says to slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. There should be something that just doesn't quite add up here to us. At the same time, aren't you glad that we can feel grateful and a profound sense of appreciation that, as one writer put it, the Apostle Paul brings his readers into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. That the gospel alone as Paul rightly understood, set the framework and the groundwork for the eventual abolition of slavery many centuries later under men like William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King Jr. Praise God for it. But nevertheless, we enter into a text from a time where masters and slaves were commonplace. Now, to be sure... There are certain lessons to be learned which may be applied to present-day Christian employers and employees, and we'll seek to make some of those important lessons known for us this morning. But again, make no mistake about it, friend. 
As alien or as uncomfortable as it may be for you or I this morning, Paul writes from a world immersed in the injustices of sin and slavery, of human-to-human abuse and domination and control. And Paul writes to a specific set of circumstances and to, to a particular group of Christians living within a Roman framework of the haves and the have-nots, of those who were masters and others who were servants or slaves. And that's the text that we enter into this morning. And Paul writes for a distinct purpose, and this is really one of the big takeaways from the morning. His purpose is to inspire courage. His purpose is to instruct Christian hearts not so much to seek a change in their earthly circumstances, but rather to seek to honor to obey and to respect those in positions of authority over them. And especially to live out loud one's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here's the glorious gospel truth. When you know Jesus by faith through the gospel and you embrace Jesus as King and as Christ, then even the poorest on earth are made to be royalty with Him. As Romans 8, 17 says, we are joint heirs with Jesus. We are co-heirs with Christ. So again, here within the context of household relationships, among which in the ancient world especially, even slaves often resided at, at their, the home of their earthly master, Paul reminds all Christians, and listen, this is where it applies to you and I especially, all Christians to work hard to honor your master in heaven as you serve your master on earth, whoever that might be. And for Christian masters to show kindness to those who live under their authority. That is to work and to lead as if you are doing so for the sake of Jesus, because guess what? You are. Because guess what? Jesus is your master if you are his follower. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate master of every man and every woman, regardless of position, class, social status, or wealth. And get this, he plays no favorites. Understand, he stands ready to judge all people at the end of human history for what they've done with the gospel and for those or against those who bear the image of Almighty God. And we need to do some background on this issue of slavery, just for a few moments. According to some estimates, there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 million slaves in ancient Roman Empire. Some sources say that was one in every two individuals in the Roman Empire. You had a 50-50 chance of being a slave if you were born in that era. One source that I looked at this week said that in Ephesus specifically, one in three people were considered to be slaves, one in three in the city of Ephesus. This is not a foreign concept for Paul or for his context. Under the Roman law, enslaved people had no personal rights and were regarded as literally the personal property of their owners or masters. This was clearly a a commonplace but contemptible experience in the ancient world, but maybe a little different than our modern notion of slavery, which again, praise God, has been abolished. A slave could be bought, sold, or beaten at the will of his or her master. 
They were unable to own property, ineligible to enter a legal contract in that time. And it was illegal in many places for slaves even to marry. Dr. James Boyce, a commentator who I'm very indebted to for this series in Ephesians, states that in the ancient world, the slave was a thing. Aristotle, the most brilliant of the Greek philosophers, wrote that there could never be friendship between master and slave, for master and slave have nothing in common. That a slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an, an, an inanimate slave. Close quote. That's what Aristotle said. Perhaps, friends, that might be true in culture, but it is not true in the church of Jesus. Because through the gospel, both master and slave have at least one great thing in common. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. We are saved and meant to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Could you mute my mic just for a moment, Keith? Another modern writer, thank you, helpfully noted that a terrible idleness had fallen on the citizens of Rome in Paul's day, that Rome was the mistress of the world, and therefore it it was beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen to work. Boy, aren't we like Romans? (laughs) Understand that slaves were not just field grunts. They were doctors, lawyers, and teachers Slaves had both skilled and unskilled positions in the Roman context. Practically all work, especially manual labor, was done by slaves so that the Roman economy and social structure depended on this little word, douloi, the slaves of the ancient world. Further, in the the first century, We need to understand that many slaves really were domestic servants, but they were more than servants. They almost became family. Think of Joseph and Potiphar in the Old Testament, book of Genesis, or perhaps Onesimus, the runaway slave, and Philemon, who we'll hear about at the end of the message this morning from the New Testament. Slaves were frequently, often functionally speaking, considered to be members of a particular household. Again, one thing that may differentiate ancient slavery from the more recent understanding of slavery in America. And this is why I believe Paul includes the master-servant relationship here at the end of this series of house code relationships describing how the gospel transforms relationships in the home and in the family. A commonplace and yet complex economic and societal cog such as Slavery, we should note some of the ways that a person could actually become a slave at that time. First, and perhaps most obvious, a person could simply be born a slave to one already a slave. Secondly, someone, again, most often someone who either was poor or made some poor decisions and became a person in great debt could sell him or herself into slavery in the time. As Chuck Swindoll points out, one of the big differences between ancient slavery and the atrocities of American slavery in the South was that Roman masters regularly granted freedom to their slaves. It was not infrequent. It was actually quite frequent, treating their slaves with at least some measure of kindness and personal dignity. 
Finally, oftentimes, foreign persons were captured as spoils of war and forced into slavery. Simply put, in the ancient world, there were really three classes of people. There was the majority class or the master class of Roman citizens and social elites who were the masters. There was then the indentured class, a a large minority of people of Roman and non-Roman slaves. And then there was the small middle section of free people like Paul himself in that time. One last word of background before we press in here is that As others have pointed out, Paul, on the surface it seems, seems to have stopped short of giving an outright condemnation of slavery in his context, and he has been derided because of it. One would think that if you're writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you would say slavery is bad. And it is. But notice as well that Paul did not condone slavery. And as I'll say in just a moment, he had a few very interesting things to say about it as well. But the point for me, at least, as I've studied this week, is that Paul appears to have known that the real source of overthrowing human injustices and abuse is not political or outward, but it is spiritual and it is inward. That to change that culture, you had to change the heart of people through the gospel. That it is through the cross work of Christ, not through the congressional work of the Senate, that lives are ultimately given meaning and dignity. And so Paul wrote with such a purpose. In fact, notice with me as we pick up some steam here now, that Paul encourages slaves, at least in some places, to seek their freedom, if at all possible. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Paul writes... Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. In other places, like Ephesians chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 and following, among several other places, Paul seems to assume the presence of master-slave relationships as a part of God's ongoing glorious work of reconciliation within the church of God. Consider for a moment 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This is the very end of Paul's ministry in life. He says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Do you see what Paul is getting at? And similarly to Titus, Paul adds as well, Titus 2, 9 and following, bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Back to Barclay. William Barclay said, the problem of work would be solved if both men and masters alike would take their orders from God. 
but frankly, we don't. And yet, I, for one, am so grateful to be free. And I'm so grateful to live in a country that has now acknowledged that freedom. But we have a long way to go. That freedom came at a great cost, and it demands great responsibility. But listen so that you get something from this message. God would have you to understand something today that presses into your circumstances. That whatever your situation, listen to me, ma'am or sir, whatever your status, whatever your station is in life, God wants you to live humbly, to live obediently, to live respectfully and joyfully, even fruitfully for Him and for His glory. That your circumstances are important, but are not ultimate, because Jesus is. And you can honor Him wherever you are. If you look to him for strength. How do you do this? Well, if you are employed, you do this in part by working hard. And we'll have a few things to say about that here in our second half of the message. By doing excellent work, by striving with the right motives and right attitudes, even when the boss isn't looking. Why? Because you are not ultimately working for DECA. You are not ultimately working for CarTech or Chick-fil-A or Cornerstone Law, though they seem to be snatching up everybody here in town. (laughs) You are working for Jesus. And if you are blessed to be an owner or an employer of others, you are to treat your employees or subordinates with dignity, with respect and fairness and justice, because God is honored by that. Why? Because there's somebody higher up on the food chain than you. Jesus is the ultimate master, and his eye is on how you treat others. Remember the golden rule, folks, that we learned as little ones. Matthew 7, verse 12, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That is gospel application for those who profess faith in the gospel of God. It was Pastor Chuck Swindoll who said, employees and employers are all equal in God's eyes, and both will someday stand before God to give account for their attitudes and actions. He says, never forget, the world does not watch our behavior at church on Sundays or in Bible studies on weeknights. They watch us at home. They see us at work. They notice how we treat our parents They pay attention to how we raise our children. They notice when we labor at our occupations with integrity. They appreciate the qualities of a thoughtful, fair, and generous boss. In all of these realms, marriage and family and work, we are to be subject to one another out of fear of Christ. And in this way, we will demonstrate to all people that not only are we saved by the blood of Jesus... But we are also living lives under the control of His Spirit. Close quote. So, to get down into the nitty-gritty and press this message home for us, how can we, you and I exactly, honor the Lord Jesus Christ today and uphold our Christian testimony in the workplace? I do think that is our modern application of this passage, though it's important for us to give proper acknowledgement of its original context with masters and slaves? What are the qualities or characteristics that should be overflowing in this church, not sparsely seen in this church? 
that give glory and honor to God? What does it look like to be people filled with the Holy Spirit of God working in this community? That's what this passage wants to say to us this morning. When it comes to our work and to work ethic as believers, we have but three options in front of us. Okay, here they are. We can serve firstly from a practice of discipline, a practice of discipline, and that is by having a I have to do it attitude. Who has a I have to do it attitude? On Monday morning, we all have a I have to do it attitude, don't we? This mentality, but really that's struggling to arrive at the ultimate goal. That's a a practice of discipline, I'm calling it this morning. Secondly, the option ahead of us is we can serve out of a position of duty, a practice of discipline or a position of duty. I might call this the I ought to do it attitude or mentality. I know this is what I have to do because I have to pay this bill. I, I have to do it. I have obligations and bills to pay. But again, that is still less than ideal. The the third and ultimate posture is a posture of devotion. A posture of devotion should be the goal for us as godly believers who work today. This is not a I have to do it or I ought to do it, but I want to do it sort of mentality behind ourselves. Discipline, duty, or devotion, which is true of you. I know which one is true of me sometimes, and it's not the goal. It's not the best. The fact of the matter is we've all known people, or perhaps we've all been people, who have been examples of lackluster work. We're going to take a testimony time right now. No, we're not going to do that. Listen, this is a true story. One of my first jobs, uh, some of the kids might know this, my first ever job was at Dairy Queen. I was the best blizzard maker in the, below the Mason-Dixon line. After Dairy Queen, I worked uh, as a busboy in a Chinese restaurant. I really, really loved that job and ate way too many fortune cookies. After that was my job, my senior year in high school, in a mom-and-pop hardware store, and all the deacons of the church are saying, pastor's lying right now because we've seen him work. We've seen him work. I kid you not, my boss one day at uh, Stanley's hardware store came up to me and he, I think he was trying to warn me off of bad behavior on company time. He told me about how a previous employee at that particular store had carried the same two by four piece of wood every day, all day long in 15 minute spurts from one end of the lumber yard to the other. The same piece of wood. And it took six months for anybody to catch on. But once they caught on, he was unceremoniously fired and dismissed from his work. Friends, that's not the work ethic that any of us ought to be aspiring to. But it's a good story, kids. Don't ever do that, please. Especially my kids sitting right over here. Do not ever do that. In contrast to that poor example, Paul gives masters and slaves, Christian employers and Christian employees... A set of maybe five or so, depending upon how you break down this passage, spirit-produced qualities that ought to be evident in our effort, in our work, as we resolve in our hearts to do everything that we do heartily unto the Lord and not unto men. So again, here's the the heading for what follows as we apply and, and press to the conclusion. How should we as Christian employees, or what do we as Christian employees owe our employers today? Well, notice what Paul says in verse 5. We owe them, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear, 
and trembling. Number one, we owe them our obedience. Maybe put it a different way, do your job. Do your job. The parallel in Colossians 3.22 says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. I know this is going to be very popular with everyone here this morning. Simply stated, and I mean this, unless your boss or your employer asks you to do something that is either illegal or immoral or unethical or something that requires you to violate God's clear commandments in the scriptures, it is your job to do your job. Are we clear? That's what the Bible calls us to do. Obey your masters in everything. Notice that Paul does not say, if you feel like doing what you've been told to do, you should do it. That's not what it says. Nor does it say, uh, if we feel like we're being treated equally or fairly within the workplace, then, then we should give a full effort. That's not what the text says, friends. And yet that's how we often apply it as 21st century Americans who want to have things our way right away. Now, of course, it takes a lot of prayerful discernment, and I get this. I've had many conversations over these years with many of you, even, about what it looks like to be faithful at work. It takes discernment to apply these precepts and principles uh, related to masters and slaves originally to our modern context. I'm not saying that it's easy for teachers or for nurses dealing with COVID restrictions to work this stuff out today. It is not easy at all. And it takes very careful and faithful prayer and conversation with pastors and elders and husbands to be able to decide these things. But what I am saying is that far too often, friend, listen to me, far too often, way too many Christians fail to honor Jesus Christ simply because they have an attitude problem leading to an effort problem in the workplace. And that is wrong of us. We are not to have an attitude problem. Simply because we don't want to do something doesn't give us a right to not do our job. Laziness is not an acceptable option for those who claim Christ is Lord. In fact, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, brothers, admonish the idol. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said something really interesting. He says, the Christian should always be the best in every department. I am not suggesting that the Christian is always the most able man in his group. He may not be. There may be others who are not Christians, but are much abler. But the Christian should be all out, always industrious, always honest, always truthful, always reliable, always helpful, always trustworthy. This is what should always stand out in the Christian. You cannot give him a new ability or new propensities, but a Christian, however unintelligent he may be, can be an honest man, an upright man, a reliable man, a man who keeps good time, a trustworthy man, a truthful man, a man whose word is his bond, always a man upon whom you can rely, and all this because he's simply a Christian man. Close quote. Look, we are to obey And that's an outward activity. But notice what else else Paul says that is basic. Besides obedience that we owe our employers, we owe them respect. We owe them respect. 
Verse 5, the second half says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Again, our outer obedience ought to spring from an inner respect and humility of heart, acknowledging and appreciating those in authority over us. You notice the connection of authority in all of these sections we've looked at lately? Paul said that when he came to Corinth to preach the gospel, that he was with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. It's the same structure of the Greek that he says right here in Ephesians 6, 5. The point is that we are to honor our earthly employers out of a holy fear for our heavenly master. You don't have to necessarily like them, but you will respect them. You need to honor them. Don't fear man, but rather have a healthy respect for those who you serve. Because our attitudes as slaves of Christ and as servants of earthly masters count just as much as our actions do. We need an attitude check, Paul says. Thirdly, notice in addition to simple obedience and a healthy respect or humility that Paul commends personal integrity. Notice the next phrase. Obey with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Literally, the phrase here is without wax. The phrase could be translated as a wholehearted obedience even unto Christ. Friends, how many of us, how many of you are guilty of ever giving a half-hearted effort at work from time to time? You're in church, folks, got to be honest, (laughs) right? Well, the measure, the fact is we've all done it, but we shouldn't do it. The measure of a Christian man or woman's integrity is at stake, and it always includes the measure of our output And could we have done more? And why did we not? This gets at personal integrity. The word integrity means wholeness of character. It means that you are the same person when nobody else is watching as when everybody is watching. Somebody has said, more people rob their employers today by being slackers than by filching the petty cash, by taking what doesn't belong to them. Do you rob your boss, of precious productivity and time. So many Christians do, and we should not. Again, Paul says our work should be without wax. When a piece of pottery in the ancient world was broken, there were ways to repair it, and one of the ways to repair it was to use wax, but it really did not hold up. And so that phrase, sincere, is, to, is the phrase without wax, because that ebbs away. It melts. Our effort is to be fully, full of genuine effort, striving for excellence, not simply the fluff and the filling of time with personal activity that we so often do. Fourth, aren't you glad you came to church today, right? Paul admonishes ancient Christian slaves and contemporary Christian employees to obey, verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. I Give the word here, honesty. We owe our employers honesty. Do you perk up when your boss walks by? <laughs> I remember working in a, uh, a business setting that everybody was in their cubicle, and you always knew when the supervisor was on the floor, everybody was, you heard the keyboards going fast. That's not how we're supposed to be. 
The idea behind this phrase is that Christians who are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and oh, by the way, he's always watching, he's always on duty, we are to give an honest effort all the time, not simply when others are around to watch or examine our work. So I ask you rhetorically, do you have a reputation as a slacker? As one who just does the bare minimum? Because let me ask you a follow-up. How does that reflect your faith in Jesus? Is that a good example of what it means to be a godly follower of Christ? Obviously it's not. Remember church, master, free man, slave, you are a bondservant of Jesus and he's watching us. Paul adds, fifthly, that Christians are to work, and this is interesting, doing the will of God from the heart. Did you know your work is the will of God? Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Again, we get to the idea of a good attitude here, fifthly, a good attitude. It's not just our output. It's not just our productivity that God is concerned with. He's concerned with the inside. He's concerned with our hearts. Do we have a good will towards our employer or our boss? I thought about this. Isn't this one of the clearest and most maybe tangible ways today in our often comfortable American context that we can exercise our faith in the justice and goodness of God? There are so few areas for us to actually apply walking by faith today as believers, financially or relationally or vocationally, whatever it might be. This is one of them. When we get passed up for that promotion, do we pout and give a half-hearted effort or do we just keep on serving Jesus, knowing that he is going to make all these things right one day? When it's been years that you've gotten that raise that you have been expecting or even maybe needing When our earthly boss plays favorites and and fails to acknowledge your good work and, and lifts up the example of somebody else in the office place, do you press on or do you groan and gripe and complain? I need this message just as much as you. Isn't that what Paul says next in verse 8? Notice the text that says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive Back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Notice that our ultimate motivation isn't the money that is paid out here and now. We are receiving wages, but there is a day of wage receiving to come. Our motivation is God's approval, which will be reconciled and renewed day upon day throughout eternity. Do we work with that day in view? So again, whether we write sermons or sweep floors, whether we take care of kids at home or nurse the elderly in a long-term facility, whether we fix problems under the house or problems in the penthouse, we are to do everything for the glory and honor of God. Now, there's fewer of us who may be the masters today, but Paul has a word for them as well. He says in verse 9 to masters within the household of God in the church to do the same. Masters, verse 9, do the same to them, that is to your slaves, and stop your threatening. 
knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Over in Colossians, Paul puts it this way, Colossians 3.25, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This, again, would have shocked Paul's original readers. He's writing to owners, to masters, saying, you are to love and respect and care for your slaves. Or the modern day, employers care for your employees. If you are a Christian business owner today, how should you treat those under your authority? Like Christ has treated you. With love and respect, treat them fairly with dignity and honor, not abusing them or taking advantage of them, not ignoring them but giving them appreciation appropriately. That is how you honor God in your role today. In the community, this is a beautiful thought. In the community, you may be over a certain man, but in the church, you are equal to him. That is awesome, and that is what Paul is getting at here. The only place in the world where the ground is perfectly level is underneath the feet of Jesus in the church of God. So what do masters and employers owe those who serve under them? As Paul says, mutual respect, good, fair working conditions, honest pay, and even generous wages, and a regular appreciation for their work. And what is the source alone? that can cause this to happen, it is only the gospel of Christ. You know, there's a book tucked away in the, towards the back in the New Testament between Hebrews and, or excuse me, between Titus and Hebrews that endures as a testimony to the power of God to reconcile masters and slaves. And I mentioned this earlier. That, of course, is the book by the name of Philemon. Now, Philemon, as most of you know, was a prominent wealthy Christian who we believe lived in the city of Colossae. Some scholars even believe that Philemon came to faith in Christ in Ephesus through Paul's apostolic preaching ministry. Well, a man by the name of Onesimus, Philemon's doulos, his slave, had evidently taken something that didn't belong to him and was a fugitive because that's what happened to slaves as you would actually perhaps even die if you took something that did not belong to you and belong to your master. But in God's providence, what happened? Well, Onesimus makes his way to Rome, and somehow, the Lord, encounters Paul. He is befriended by Paul, and he hears the gospel, and he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. So now, what's going to happen? Onesimus is now a redeemed man on the run. What happens next? Well, That's what the letter of Philemon is all about. And that's why I started out the message the way I did, that this is a message not about the change of your circumstances, but the conquest in your circumstances. And so Paul takes up the pen and he writes a letter to his friend Philemon and he sends it home by the hand of Onesimus. And listen to what he says in this letter. Philemon, verse 10 and following, I appeal to you, Philemon, For my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. 
Formerly, he was useless to you. That's a play on the, the name of Onesimus. It means useful. He says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he indeed is useful to you and to me. I, would, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart, Paul writes. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order, notice, that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted for you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Only the gospel can do that, friend. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can give courage to a runaway slave and compassion to a slave owner to forgive the one who took something from him. I don't know what your circumstances are this morning, but I know what God's will is for you in those circumstances. I think of what Paul says in Philippians 4.13, a verse we so love to quote out of context. Paul says, I can do all things through him, meaning Jesus, who strengthens me. Are you praying for God to change your circumstances or to change you in your circumstances? Well, the gospel is God's promise to change you in the midst of your circumstances. If you're here this morning and you're struggling, you have pastors and elders and friends who want to know about it and to pray with you about it. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you are a slave, brother or sister, You are a slave to sin. We want to introduce you to a new master whose way is life and hope and freedom. We want to invite you to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Let's bow in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we need your Holy Spirit both to really lean into this passage and and retain this passage and now to walk in it This is hard for us, Lord. In fact, I'd say it's impossible for us apart from your spirit. So, Father, thank you for being with us, and thank you for the clarity of your word, for how it convicts us, and it is useful to to make us fully equipped to be the men and women of God that you would have us to be. Lord, we pray for walking grace, walking grace in the light of your truth, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.